Hello, dear listeners. I'm Brooke Warner, and I am here with my co-host, Grant Faulkner. And, you know, I'm actually purposely omitting our standard descriptive opener this week (laughs) (laughs) because I didn't want to make anyone feel too uncomfortable Uh Yeah, by calling all of you sensuous, desirous, exotic, erotic creatures. But, you know, you are. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about erotica this week, um, as is evidenced by the show title. And it's actually a super important and well-read genre and one that doesn't get enough attention, usually because sex can be scary and taboo and hard to write. But Grant, there is definitely one thing sex is not, and that is hard to sell. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why, but humans seem to have this endless fascination for sex. It's, I know it's, why. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> like how a fart joke is always funny to a five-year-old. I don't know if you've observed that, but um, humans like sex in their stories. And I was thinking about it. It's like, you know, whether it's Bridgerton or Fifty Shades of Grey or Outlander or the unbearable lightness of being, the enjoyment of sex on the page crosses genres. And uh, even though sex is perhaps the hardest thing to write or write well, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. And like I was saying, it is across many genres. It's like we're talking about erotica today, but this is certainly not just the realm of erotica. And I was listening recently to an interview that Anne Rice did with Terry Gross, kind of a remembrance interview because Anne Rice died recently. And this was an older show uh, on Fresh Air, maybe 20 plus years ago. And one of the things they discussed was that Anne Rice used to write porn under a pen name. And she was quite eloquent in speaking about it. And she talked mainly about the readership, not the form. But her point was that there was a real appetite for it, obviously. (laughs) And she felt that her readers were so grateful to her for having written those stories. And so the first thing out the gate that I thought would be interesting for this episode is to define the difference between porn and erotica. Uh, And note that this is the academic leaning way of thinking about these terms. Uh, I saw this online. Erotica is any artistic work that deals substantively with erotically stimulating or sexually arousing subject matter, while porn can be described as a creative activity, writing, pictures, films, etc., of no literary or artistic value other than to stimulate sexual desire. So um, that's interesting. One is artistic and the other has no artistic value. Uh, But honestly, people's sexual proclivities are so different that this just seems kind of like a nice way of saying one is crude and the other is not. Uh, That's how I read it anyway. And then on that note, uh, American film producer Lucy Fisher is quoted as having said, erotica is brunettes in silk. Pornography is blondes in nylon. Erotica is for nice middle-class literate people like us. Hmm. (laughs) Pornography is for the lonely, unattractive, and uneducated. So uh, classism much is what I was thinking when I was reading that. But still, I will confess to being guilty of entertaining thoughts about how much better off our kids would be if their introduction to sex, you know, however lewd it might be, was through erotic or even porn writing rather than online videos. Because at least writers have to think about how they're presenting sex and eroticism and titillation. And so Grant, you know, since my son is still this innocent age of 11, definitely on the cusp, indulge me in this fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, do you have any insight here into what the world would look like if kids first exposure to sex scenes was uh, on the page and not on the screen? To answer your question, no, I have no insight and and no great skills in sex education. And I've never thought about this, but I've I've read that a lot of kids, uh, meaning like 
50% or 75% tremendous amount are basically getting their sex education from online porn, you know, which I don't think can be good. So yeah, I, th I think that, you know, sex on the page might be inherently of higher value just because you have to work harder with words as a writer and maybe even analyze what is sexy and appeal to a reader's imagination instead of just presenting sex graphically. And good writing is about suspense and description and placing hints that are like seeds in the imagination and anticipation and depth of characterization, all of which goes, you know, tends to go beyond porn. So as a totally unqualified candidate for methods of sex education, yeah, I'm for it. Let's get our kids reading more erotica. Um, Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quoting you on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's going to be taken out of context and it will ruin me. But per your division between erotica being more for the literary upper classes and pornography being for the literary, you know, unliterary commoners, Al Goldstein, who was a notorious porn publisher, uh, said eroticism is what turns me on. Pornography is what turns you on. <laughs> so similar to Lucy Fisher's quote, you know, sexual expression is always viewed through a subjective lens, I suppose. And it's viewed through an ever-shifting cultural lens, too. I, I, I went from my undergraduate years in college where an Andrea Dworkin-inspired feminism pervaded the campus and then moved to San Francisco, which was quite the opposite. It was a you know kind of one big celebration of sex-positive feminism. <laughs> so, Brooke, I, I know you are at the center of this conversation at Seal Press, so I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, sex positive feminism was our thing for sure. You know, it still is to a certain extent. And um, I got such an education in feminism during my time there and sex positive feminism included, you know, part of that, you know, and I also saw that those factions and infighting within feminism. And so there's no surprise here that there's long been a push pull love hate affair between erotica and feminism, certainly between porn and feminism. Uh, as Rachel's going to speak to a little bit later, I mean, I think the primary issue at hand is around consent. You know, I, I don't think that any self-professed feminist could say that, you know, the, the non-consensual porn and, uh, and erotica would be something that they fully endorse. But during my time at SEAL, we were doing a lot of books about sex, and I acquired uh, many books, you know, on topics from masturbation to porn for women to today's guest, who is Rachel Kramer Bustle. And the book that we did together was Dirty Girls. And I acquired Susie Bright's memoir. And for those of you who don't know who she is, she founded the first women's erotica book series called Herotica and edited the first three volumes and then later started the national bestselling series, The Best American erotica. Um, you know, so yeah, the, the feminism was sex positive and body positive and most important woman centric, which is still my feminism today. And, you know, I just support women working out their sexual issues and fantasies and desires on the page. You know, I think to do that with freedom is really important. And especially as someone who's working with memoirists, it's already a space where women get judged so differently than their male counterparts. And we certainly talked about that recently with Erica Jong. And I talked about that with Gina Frangello in my interview with her, um, which was in conjunction with Women Lit, when we talked about sex, because so much of her book had you know, these explicit sex scenes. Um, and she wrote about kink and didn't hold much back for the writer. And, you know, I'll confess that as a reader of her book, Blow Your House Down, I had feelings about those scenes. Uh, and those feelings were complicated and they were mixed, you know, things like admiring and shocked and cheering her on and horrified and envious and even repulsed sometimes. And I think, you know, if you think about it, like we're, we're fed how we're supposed to think about sex. 
And then sex is this place where many of us, especially women, often tend to be the least liberated. And then sex writing as a result can be fraught with a lot of contradictory emotions as well as, you know, our reactions to sex writing. And then fantasy is fantasy, (laughs) you know, and a lot of people have feelings and desires that they would never act on in real life. And that's another realm of porn and erotica. Uh, You know, you can enjoy something without feeling like you're going to go do that thing. Uh, And this is where feminists get held to a different standard too, because the idea is that you know, feminists aren't allowed to have fantasies, for instance, of being dominated. Um, And the idea is like, if you're against misogyny and sexual assault, you can't have fantasies about sexual submission, or anything for that matter. And of course, that's super restrictive. um, And feminists are already resisting being boxed in to begin with. So this is a huge topic, obviously. Yeah, this is really interesting to me, because I hadn't given this all that much thought before. Uh, it's not a world I've been particularly immersed in, and it made me curious to go back and look at some of the early erotic novels that that you know made an impact in in the popular mainstream culture. And notably, I'm thinking the story of O, which is a seminal novel by Anne de Clos, uh, which was published under the, the the pen name Pauline Réage in 1954. Those are French names, by the way. <laughs> and you know that was published during a time when there was a lot of BDSM erotica being published in France and on the cusp of the women's liberation movement. And then we cannot pass over Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, of course, and Emmanuel uh, is an erotic odyssey of sexual liberation and submission, which was published in 1967, also in France, and Anais Nin's 1977 short story collection Delta Venus, very famous, and it features fantasies of sexual submission and dominance. And and as you might notice, listeners, I'm I'm only in France so far. (laughs) Um, We haven't gone beyond the borders. Uh, Much more acceptable there. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of uh, erotica was born there, but it's you know it's, it's so it's fascinating to look at some of the the seminal works that paved the way for something like Fifty Shades of Grey, which is you know one of the big American erotic novels or erotica, um, and it was such a huge cultural phenomenon about ten years ago. And you know the ways in which these kinds of books are both you know embraced and rejected at the same time. So much of the objection around Fifty Shades of Grey, for instance, was about how poorly written it was. And yet you have to wonder if erotica and porn writing were, you know, if, if they were more mainstream and embraced by the publishing industry, you know, maybe they'd be written better. <laughs> That's one to contemplate. You know, erotica hangs out in that realm of being embraced and not at the same time, which is, you know, an interesting space, not too unlike memoir, actually. And, you know, so much of erotica is compiled into anthologies rather than single author books, which we're going to ask Rachel about. Um, Rachel herself has 70 anthologies or more than 70 is just an, an amazing number. And she seems to have multiple ones going at the same time, even right now. So if any of our listeners are listening and happen to be writing erotica, you could submit. Uh, and the other thing in my experience is, you know, I wanted to say this. It's like, it's actually hard to find really good erotic writing. I I read a fair amount in my professional capacity at SEAL. And then over the years, I've tried to find good erotica at times, you know, online and in books. And, you know, again, this goes back to all of us being different in terms of what floats our boats. But, you know, in a collection of 30 stories of an in an erotic novel, and Rachel said, Sometimes there are many, many more stories. You know, she said intentionally, sometimes there are 69 stories, but you might find only a handful of them that intrigue you and the rest don't. And I think that that's the complicated part of this genre and why the short story format has been so largely successful, um, or at least, you know, at the bare minimum, very steady. Yeah. Sex tends to be complicated on the page and off the page. 
So it's with a little relief that I'm going to transition <laughs> to Rachel Kramer Bustle, who lives and breathes this stuff more than we do. And we'll dive a bit deeper into erotica, the writing, the genre, the business side, and how she got her start in this space. So hang with us for this brief musical interlude, and we will be right back. We are back with Rachel Kramer Bustle, who is the editor of over 70 anthologies, including Dirty Girls, Curvy Girls, The Big Book of Orgasms, and the Best Women's Erotica of the Year series. She teaches erotica writing workshops worldwide and online and consults about erotica and nonfiction sexuality via eroticawriting101.com. Rachel's nonfiction has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Glamour, Salon, The Village Voice, and other publications. And you can find her on Twitter at Raquelita. Hey, Rachel, it's so great to have you on Right Minded. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a treat for me and for Grant. And, um, you know, you've edited over 70 anthologies, and that's honestly an incredible volume of anthologies. So could you talk through what that looks like for you? I mean, I'm kind of assuming you have like two or three anthologies a year, maybe more at that rate. And I'm curious to know whether you mainly like erotica lends itself to anthologies and why that is versus a collection of stories by a single author. Sure. Um, yes, that's correct. I do edit multiple ones per year and I started in 2014. So while 70 is a lot, it, there were also years in there where I was doing something like five or six a year, which is way too many. I mean, for my <laughs> workload. So, uh, so that's how so many have happened. But I really both fell in love with writing and reading erotica, especially short fiction and the process of anthology editing. And I do think it lends itself, erotica lends itself to that format. And, you know, I think some people, only want to read longer novels, but a lot of people are picking up erotica just for something different, for some ideas maybe to try on their own in the bedroom or just for variety. And I think an anthology provides that variety, whatever the topic of the anthology, there's going to be, let's say, you know, 18 to 69, because I've edited a couple with 69. Yes, on purpose. And so I think you're going to come across just all sorts of different types of storytelling, types of writing, types of sex, types of characters. And for me as a reader, that's what I was reading before I started even thinking about writing erotica. I was reading Susie Bright's Herotica and Best American Erotica series. So that was my introduction to the genre. And I really enjoy it as a reader, too, in, in other genres, like short form fiction and nonfiction, because I tend to have a short attention span and I like a feeling of completion. So if I only have 15 minutes at the end of the night to read, I don't have to feel like, oh, I'm putting this down in the middle of something juicy. I can read a full story. And I think that's why it appeals to a lot of people. Well, Rachel, I, th I thought it would be helpful for you to define for our listeners just what erotica is. Brooke and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, and I think people can sometimes have a misconception about it or just not understand its place in the world of book publishing. So I'm curious what the distinction is from your standpoint as someone who's actively working in this space between porn and erotica. That is a good question. It's also a hard one to answer because I think whatever I say it's a subjective question. I don't know that there's a definitive, 
you know, rule. I'll give you my answer, but I also think to some degree it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, for me and the definition I use when I'm teaching classes is erotica is writing intended to arouse. And that really leaves a lot of room. I mean, of course, there's probably going to be sex in most erotica, but strictly by that definition, a short story specifically doesn't have to have what we would think of as sex to be something arousing. And that's, I think, an important distinction because it isn't just about the sex acts. It's really about the whole storytelling element and building up to what about the story is erotic and what's erotic to the characters. And when you break it down like that, I mean, anything could be erotic. I I think probably any act, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm looking at a painting and it's not necessarily an erotic moment for me, but I've edited stories where looking at a painting is an erotic moment for someone, whether because they're in a museum or the painting is, you know, a sexy painting or someone is with them and there's sexual tension between them. So I think what I've learned over all this time is that almost any action or or setting can be erotic. It's really how the writer approaches it. And I think that's why I've been able to do it for so long and not get bored. Like, oh, I'm not feel like I'm going through the motions because different writers on different days are going to have different approaches to what is erotic. And so I think, while that's a very open description. I think that's part of why the genre is so welcoming of new writers because there is no specific like amount of sex, at least in my books, that I'm looking for. I know some publishers, especially in romance, I think there are kind of quotas where you have to have a certain number of sex scenes, but I don't have that qualification for when I'm looking for short stories. So erotica writing is a pretty niche genre. Um, and yet it's one that's really important because obviously erotica is not just limited to these short stories. Erotica shows up in memoirs and it shows up in novels. I mean, people need to learn how to write erotica scenes, right? So my feeling was there's always going to be readers for erotica. And how did you get into this kind of writing in the first place? I, I wanted to ask you about your origin story. I definitely did not set out to be an erotica writer or editor. I think if you had asked me in high school or college, that really would have been the farthest thing from my mind because I didn't grow up reading it. I didn't even know that much about it until college when I discovered some other erotica anthologies edited by Shar Rednauer and those by Susie Bright and some of the Bay Area bookstores where I was living. And they were just so fun and interesting to me. And they were so different. I I had read Danielle Steele and Judith Krantz and some of those kind of racy romance novels. But but when you call them racy compared to erotica, you know, they were not really racy at all. So like (laughs) these erotica anthologies really just exposed me to a lot of different kinds of sex, kinds of sex toys, ways of approaching sex. And I think those had a really strong impact on my personal life and my sex life. And I also think because there were so many writers and I would read over their bios and I would see that some of them were professional writers, but some of them were not necessarily. I think that encouraged me when I saw a call for submissions. And I want to say that was in 1999. And can I say a curse on here? 
There's a curse in the book title. That's what I was imagining. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, so Shar Rennauer was editing an anthology called Starfucker, which was based on a zine she had, which was about celebrity fantasies and erotica. And I wrote a story about Monica Lewinsky called Monica and Me that got published in this book, Starfucker. And that came out in 2001. That was my first story I wrote and the and it got published. And that was just so thrilling. Like I had written other things, little essays and letters to the editor, but I'd never had my work in a book before. And I mean, I can still picture that. That was just really exciting to me. To me, that was a, a goal and that I didn't even know I had, but then all of a sudden I had it and it was kind of addictive. Then I started writing more and more short stories. And then in 2004, someone asked me to co-edit an anthology. And then basically from that point onward, I've just been doing the same thing, just more and more of it. Um, and so I feel like that's an important part of the story. Oh, and I was in law school at the time I was writing it, which I like to tell people because when I'm editing, I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what degrees you have. I don't care where you've published. I just care, does your story work for my purposes in editing this anthology? And I really make it a point to encourage newer authors, either new to the genre entirely or that I've never worked with to submit their stories, because I think everyone needs that first break to, you know, move on and also to feel good about your writing, you know, that external validation and then having other people read it. And I love that I can be that person for a lot of authors. Well, Rachel, in addition to writing erotica and editing these anthologies, you also teach erotica writing. And on your site, one of the things you note is that you help writers to overcome their fears and master the art of arousing readers on the page. And I have to say, as someone who's been writing for a decade and talked to a lot of writers, uh, I think every, writers at every single level are challenged by this and they need uh, help overcoming their fears and mastering the art of arousing readers on the page. So I was wondering if you could share with us a piece of advice or two that you have um, for writers who are embarrassed or scared to write erotically? I mean, I think first, before you're even writing, is making peace with the fact that you can write something and it can be just for you. Even if you ultimately want to publish, don't think about that while you're writing. Because even for me, that's too intimidating to sit there as you're typing and think, oh, what is, you know, that person I went to high school with, or, you know, my family or this person, like, what are they going to think? Or even strangers, it's just too intimidating. And with erotica, that's all the more so. So as much as you can, sort of just think of it as your own personal project first, and free your own thoughts. Because I think even people who feel like they're they don't have shame around sex. Like our culture has so much shame around sex that it it tends to affect most of us. And that really does show up in in our writing. And I think before we even sit down to write, it shows up in our thoughts and our our comfort or discomfort with those thoughts. And it can be really hard to overcome that and make peace with that and let your characters do what what kind of like you want them to do, but this other part of you feels like, well, what are gonna people going to think? So I've, you really have to get rid of that self-censoring of what are people going to think if you want your erotica to be truthful to you, first of all. And then really, 
I think you can't approach it like, okay, I'm going to sit down and write a story about spanking. I mean, you could approach it that way, but that's not what I would advise. If you want to write about spanking, I think you, you have to think about who are your characters? Why are they into whether it's spanking or whatever it is? Maybe they're into kissing or holding hands. I wrote an erotica story called I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that was part of the sort of arousing factor was this hand holding, I believe in a movie theater, but it it doesn't really matter what the thing is, but think about your characters the way you would writing any genre. And then what about this act or what about this scenario or this other person they're involved with or people or whatever it is, like what is motivating them? Why is it a turn on for them? Sometimes authors assume that, well, of course, let's say going to an orgy is going to be a turn on and everyone's going to instantly understand why that's exciting for this character. But don't assume the reader knows because what's a turn on for your character might be different than what's a turn on for the reader. And it's your job to flesh out that character and their own motivation. And maybe you're going to go on to write a whole novel or 10 novels or 10 stories about different orgies. So you don't want it to sound cookie cutter. So I think going back to the sort of human emotion of it and the the whatever it is that's driving them. And maybe it's not so deep and emotional. Maybe it's just, you know, doing this thing, you know, feels good to me or to my character. And that's fine too. But, you know, I think you just have to be very specific about why it feels good and then how it feels good. And and also if if they are with another person, what is the interaction between those people like? Because sometimes even if it's first person, you can still get the other character's point of view in there. And I think that's important too, because you don't want to seem like, well, this is great for person A, but we have no idea what person B is thinking or feeling. Hmm. Thanks for that, Rachel. Yeah, it's like taking it all back to character, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and I was, I, I wanted to share with our listeners that I acquired Dirty Girls, uh, one of your anthologies when I was at SEAL. So we worked together in that capacity. And you have two anthologies with SEAL, I believe. Right. And a also... Yeah, Curvy Girls is with Seal and then also with Cleus. And I wanted to just note the female focused sensibility of some erotica and ask you about the intersection of feminism and erotica, because there's a range of erotica, of course, but this feminist stuff is is kind of unique and obviously appeals to these women run presses and female writers. So I'm, I'm just curious about um, if you could say a word about that intersection of, of feminism and, and erotica and if that specifically appeals to you as an editor. I would say it appeals to me as a person and as a feminist. Um, there's certain values that are that I hold that I think show up in the books. You know, I wouldn't put, I mean, I, I hope I wouldn't do this anyway, but like, you know, making sure consent is there and is very clear is important to me. Um, and that's also important to my publishers I've worked with. Um, and also intersectionality and for my role as an editor, making sure I'm reading widely and reaching out to authors that I admire who might not on their own submit to my books and saying, hey, you know, I like your writing. I like this aspect of it. Maybe you'll consider writing for me. And um, I, I think that for me is a large part of how feminism shows up. And I also think just the breadth of 
women's desire as well as other people, trans people, genderqueer. Um, certain books have, have more diversity in terms of sexual orientation, sexuality, and gender that I've edited. And that wasn't really on my radar when I started back in the 2000s, but it's definitely become more important to me. There's certain things, I'm not going to say I have a quota, but I, I don't want to publish a book of all white writers. I don't want to publish a book of all widely published writers. I, d- I always want to leave room for authors who are new to to erotica. And, you know, I also want the characters in the books to be as diverse as possible, not just in terms of race, but in terms of things like age, um, experience level. I, I never want it to seem to someone who might be picking up erotica for the first time, like, well, this is erotica for other kinds of people who all sort of are in the know or, you know, are, are super like in some sort of click. I want the characters to be to be as wide ranging as possible. So there's a story in Best Women's Erotica of the Year, volume four by Megan Hart. That's an Amish queer love story. And that's one that's really memorable and powerful. And there are erotic elements because it's a book of erotica, but I think there's also really strong emotional elements too. And that's something I look for. I don't need every story and I probably wouldn't publish the majority of stories that are really like pulling at your heartstrings because that one also has a sad element. But I do want that too. I, I don't want every story just to be like happy orgasms in every scene and every sentence. Like sometimes the drama is a little bit darker. Sometimes it's someone experiencing prejudice or going through a breakup or or something else happening that's not necessarily what you'd associate with erotica. But I think what can make it erotic is that people are finding joy and sexuality despite these other things going on in their lives. And I think to me, that's important as a person because I think sexuality is a part of our lives, not only when things are going well. And I want my erotica books to reflect that. Well, Rachel, I'm going to switch subjects a bit here um, because another important part of what you do is tracking book trends. And you've written, you know, a lot of nonfiction pieces about the industry and you have a regular column on Forbes where you cover book trends. And and we also talk a lot about book trends on Right Minded. So I'm curious to know what sparks your interest when it comes to trends and what are the criteria that make for an interesting publishing story? That is a good question. It's funny because I really started focusing on the book industry and publishing late 2018. And I thought, well, is there going to be enough to cover? Because at the time I was <laughs> writing seven pieces a month for Forbes and and some other freelance pieces. And so I'm just always on the lookout for something a little bit different. And I do pay attention to which ones people react to the most. I wrote about a Cincinnati, I think it was Cincinnati, a mobile bookseller, like a, a bus. And people really like that. And I think it's in part because that's several stories. That's a publishing story. That's a career story. Someone, you know, making a mobile bookmobile and turning that into a business. It's a small business story. I'm always interested in the intersection between the creative side and the business side, which could be having to do with you know, booksellers, with libraries, with with authors, because I think there's also a creative side to book marketing. And a lot of writers, I work with a lot of newer authors or, or aspiring authors. And I also just see a lot of writers on message boards and groups online. And a lot of creative types don't really want to think about the business side. But 
I don't know if you'd say I want to, but I do because it's, it's it is my business. It's how I make a living. So I, I'm always interested in that. And I'm just always looking for people doing things that, whether that's an author or a, a bookseller or a librarian or an editor that are something that seems a little bit new to me, you know, and, and or that's just not the same old thing. And I think really the sky's the limit on what that could be, especially now when publishing is changing. And especially in the pandemic, I think people have had to be really creative. And one of the stories I really liked, which is not really on the business side, but was early in the pandemic in 2020. Uh, I think it was a group that did a silent reading, quarant- I think it was called Quarantine Pages, where they would meet on Zoom and read together. Mm. Like the silent reading series, huh? Yeah. And, you know, they would hold, I think at the beginning, they'd hold up their books and, you know, maybe share what they were reading. But then it was a way to form community at a time when people felt really isolated. And to me, that is the kind of story I'll always want to write about, because isn't that the whole point of reading that you're usually doing it by yourself, but you feel this connection to the author or maybe to other people as you're reading? Yep, absolutely. That's great. And we're always looking at these trends as well. I mean, there's no shortage of interesting stories out there. And I love the ones that are coming out of the pandemic, too. Uh, Well, in closing, Rachel, we see that you have two new calls for submissions on your site. So this aspect of your work, as we've already said, is a constant. And I'm curious, as an editor of anthologies, does your own writing tend to take a backseat? And how do you prioritize your own work when you're reading other people? basically constantly? (laughs) That is a good question. I don't know if I have a great answer because I don't write a a lot of erotica these days. I write an occasional piece, but I think my kind of editor brain is usually focused on that. And my writing tends to be the nonfiction. And I also, I would be concerned that I'm, you know, in my head, not on purpose, but, you know, accidentally sort of poaching phrases or ideas from writers if I'm actively editing. But I do think the writing and editing fuel each other for me. Um, You know, I do get ideas, especially on the teaching. Like when I'm teaching an erotica class, I'm also sometimes doing the exercises right along with the students or or they spark, it sparks an idea that I'd never had before about a plot line. And I think to me, that's, like whether it's erotica or any other genre that you write in, I think if you can approach it on your, you know, in the, in year 20, the same way you approached it on day one with the knowledge you have, obviously, but with that beginner's mind and be open to new ideas, you can keep creating things that people are going to want to read. So I try to keep that in mind with my own writing. Love that, Rachel. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for being with us on the show. It's really so good to hear your voice after all these months and years of not seeing you. You too. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rachel. We will be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend is actually courtesy of our guest, Rachel Kramer-Bessel, because she has been tracking book trends for a few years now. And so I went and borrowed one from her. And this trend uh, is relevant because we are actually still in January. (laughs) And that is that many or more self-help books tend to get published in January. Uh, And we're going to unpack why that's the case. And, you know, there's so much going on behind the scenes in book publishing that the reading public doesn't give much thought to, Grant. And this seems like one of those things, you know, 
the industry is actually paying attention to people's appetites and feelings and moods. And so, of course, with the start of a new year being a time for personal transformation and resolutions, um, this seems pretty obvious that they would want to capitalize on self-help and pushing lots of books out the gate. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was curious to read in Rachel's Forbes article on this subject that there are actually 28 subcategories of self-help. I had no idea. Um, the whole thing made me realize how much we as readers are targeted to buy and consume and don't even realize it. I'm imagining all these folks at the publishing houses sitting around months in advance planning for their January release and the unwitting buyer who finds it in December and hopefully changes their life in, in January. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Maybe I'm changing my life right now and I don't even know why. Totally. But to the publishing industry, you're just a face with a wallet. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, keep that in mind. And I actually did buy a couple of self-help titles this month. So it's hard to miss all the advertisements. And then I'm doing audiobooks. So stuff comes up in my queue. And there were a couple of things that stood out to me. I got uh, Get Out of Your Head by Jenny Allen. Uh, and actually, that's a, been a great book. And it has given me some self, uh, some self-help tips as it's supposed to <laughs> and pointers because I tend to perseverate a bit. I'm, I'm sure many people are, especially in the pandemic. Uh, definitely worthwhile. And then the other one that I picked up by recommendation, it's sort of self-help um, because it's about my business. And I do consider reading about my business to be self-helping myself. So uh, this body of work book uh, by Pamela Slim is an excellent and little slim volume playing on her name there. Uh, but I highly recommend it. And I don't know. Grant, have you had any self-help books pop up in your queue yet this year? Nope. I, I'm pretty much done. I'm, I'm, I kind of reached perfection uh, with my last well self-help book. I, yeah. Uh, no. Uh, I haven't bought any self-help in a while, uh, not because I don't need it. Um, I suppose I got one self-help book, but it's for writing, so I'm not sure if that counts. But it's uh, Jeff Tweedy's book, How to Write One Song, which is very right-minded in spirit in a self-helpy way. Uh, the goal of the book is about the importance of digging deep and finding beauty even when we don't have the time or confidence, you know, in ourself to do so and if you don't know Tweety he's the very prolific songwriter and frontman for the band Wilco awesome well I like that I actually hadn't thought of ourselves as self-helpy and so now I'm gonna start thinking <laughs> about that a little bit more because we totally are right I mean we are uh, doing the work of keeping you inspired week in and week out hopefully uh, so thank you for listening and you know as we head into this year uh, with lots of unknowns in front of us we hope that you keep tuning in and a gentle reminder slash favor that we are still looking for those reviews and likes because it definitely definitely helps us to get to the top of the cues of discoverability and a lot of other stuff. So we are a weekly podcast. Thank you again. And we will see you next week. <laughs>